Let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy 1. We need to get started right away here. And thank you for being here this evening, 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> and I promise you, if you'll amen, even if you don't understand me, I will end the service fast, okay? <laughs> and if you don't, I'm just going to pretend my, my voice is all messed up, and I'll just keep on dragging it on, okay? So you help me out there, amen? amen. All right, all right, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'd like to read the whole chapter, it's all good, but I want you to focus on verses 1 to 5 tonight. Get your pencil out and your pen and piece of paper. I want to take some good notes tonight and uh, pray it will help encourage you this evening. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, would you follow as we read, please? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do." Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Brother Sherman, I'm going to ask you a favor. Brother Sherman, do you guys have a wireless mic? Uh, do you have a handheld? Can you bring the handheld to Brother, Brother uh, Irwin or Brother A.G.? I, I'm going to need them to lead in prayer for here a minute just so I can save my voice. If one of you guys can pray here. Now while he's doing that, I want, you to, I want you to underline some words tonight. I want you to underline in verse 1 the word commandment. I want you to underline in verse 2, <clears throat> Timothy, my own son. I want you in verse 3, underline several words. In verse 3, abide still at Ephesus. I want you to underline in verse 3, thou mightest charge some. I want you to underline no other doctrine. That's the title of the message tonight. No other doctrine. I want you to underline verse 4, godly edifying. That's important in the context of what we're studying tonight. Then verse 4, did you notice those last two words? So do. Okay, it's not enough to get the word of God. You've got to do something about it, amen? So do, okay? Then in verse 5, I want you to see three phrases. You'll hear me say this later on tonight. It's the three-point shot of the Christian life. Now, I like watching basketball, but my favorite part is watching a guy make a three-point shot. Amen? And uh, I want you to notice a three-point shot in verse 5. Charity out of a pure heart, a good conscience, faith unfeigned. So tonight, we're going to have a Bible study tonight. We're going to preach. I'll take a break from my voice. And we're going to study some more and preach. And when the ship lands, we need to be ready to do something for God. Father, bless. Oh, let's see. Who's got it? You, you pray for us. I'll save my voice. But why don't you pray, brother? Lord, thank you for tonight and for allowing us to be uh, in your house. And we understand, Lord, that this is your church. We understand, Lord, that this is your body. And I pray, Father, that you sanctify us with your truth. And thy word is truth. We pray tonight, Lord, that our ears would be opened uh, to your word, that we would receive your word. As it be, as it's not of the word of men, but, Lord, your word. And I pray that you'd help us to live it out by faith. 
Thank you, Lord, for the topic that we're going to study tonight. Help it to challenge us, to mold us into the image of Christ, and to help our church to be a glorious church that would be presentable to you as your bride. Bless now our pastor as he preaches your word. Help him, Lord, to have the voice that he needs and the strength uh, that he needs to be able to preach. And we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, uh, undergird him with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you for this. For this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think what happened Sunday after I preached, uh, preached in the morning, normally I drink hot water from my voice. And I sat out here with everybody else who was drinking cold ice water and things like that. I think that's what messed up my voice. You pray for me. I, I've been struggling since Sunday afternoon with this. So just help pray that I, I don't lose my voice here. All right, we're in 1 Timothy. I love 1 Timothy. I want to encourage all the men in our church, if you are in your, inwardly in your heart, you're secretly praying about whether or not God wants you in the ministry, whether or not you're even, you should be, whether or not you have the gift of pastoring, you ought to spend time reading through First and Second Timothy. I believe that without Bible colleges and Bible institutes, I think one of the greatest tools for training men in the ministry is, is studying through and being taught First and Second Timothy and Titus. Those are the pastoral epistles. And uh, I, I've just been going back through it again in my devotions this week, and that's what kind of just got, got just really got all over me on, on Monday. And uh, I just to be honest with you, I was weeping and crying and just asking God, God, you gotta you gotta stop this because you, He's just working all over me on from chapter one and some fresh thoughts He gave me there. So I, I'm gonna spend some time talking to you through chapter one tonight, and I hope some of our folks are watching live stream this theme. Let me give you some introduction tonight. You ready? First of all, I want, you to under, I want us to look at Timothy before we get into our message. I want to look at Timothy tonight. Notice in verse 2, Paul says he's writing by commandment. Verse 1, he's writing by the commandment of God. Now, he doesn't spend time in this chapter or the introduction of his book being very, um, uh, you know, like he typically does. He kind of warms up the audience by saying, well, I thank God for you and I'm praying for you and those kind of things there. And a very warm, flowery way in which he introduced himself. Paul is being very direct in this letter. And in verse 1, Paul is claiming apostolic authority. What I mean by apostolic authority, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as the founding pastor at Ephesus, he's saying, I'm writing by the commandment of God. He said, God told me to write this letter to you, Timothy, and because there's some things you need to do as a spiritual leader in the church. So, that's number, so we see that. We get to verse number 2, and I want you to underline this. He's writing to Timothy, his son, in the faith. And I have so many things I can say about that tonight. I don't have time. But Timothy got saved under the Apostle Paul's ministry back in Acts chapter 14. Paul went to Lystra and Derby there, and uh, as he was preaching there, unbeknownst to him, a, a, a mother a grandmother, and this young man by the name of Timothy all came to Christ. Now, we don't have a record of Timothy's father ever getting saved. Timothy's father was a Greek. His mother was a Jewish. Regardless of that, when Paul went there, I think there's several things that stood out in Timothy's young eyes and heart that really magnetized him towards the ministry by, as far as the call of God's concerned. I think number one is the stoning of Paul at Lystra. And you've heard me preach the message entitled, uh, You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. And when I preached it several years ago, and in that message, I alluded to the fact that Paul's friends all stood around him, and I believe those friends were more than just uh, Tim, were more than just uh, Barnabas. I believe Lois and Eunice and Timothy were among that group of people that stood around Paul and were encouraged him to get up. And I think that this says something to Timothy that he saw this man, this preacher of the gospel, get pummeled by stones, probably had his head busted open, bleeding, broken, and all that. He got right back up, went right back into the city to confront the very people that stoned him. And I think that left impression on him. Well, Paul went away 
In chapter 15 of Acts, he had to go back and do it. Well, actually, he went back and reported. He went back to the church in Antioch, reported there, and uh, t- went to the, and some of the churches they started before that, Antioch and Pisidia, and so forth like that, and grounded the believers and, and uh, trained some men, had some pastors positioned in those places there. And then they had to deal with the controversy about the, the gospel coming to the Gentiles because the, the, the Jews back in, 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 uh, uh, back in Jerusalem were a little bit leery about that. And Paul and Barnabas brought a good testimony about that. And James, of course, being the pastor, gave full support of that. And, and the church just rallied around this situation. And they stayed there and ministered to the church. And then as God had it, God led Paul back on the second missionary trip. And when he made his <clears throat> first stop, he went back to Lystra and Derby to kind of settle the believers down and to ingrain them with the Word of God. Uh, the believers there introduced Paul to Timothy. And he had a good report, and that's an important thing. I don't have time to get into it tonight. But if you go back to Acts chapter 16, Timothy, the Bible says, was well reported by the brethren. They said, you know what? You need a young man to go with you on the journey, and this young man, is, his name is Timothy. Now, let me say this tonight. Our young men, we've got young men in the church, and I'm thankful for young men. And we need to be in a place where we need to encourage our young men to serve God, we need to encourage our young men to take some risks. We need to encourage our young men to do great things for God. Our brother Eugene's son is, is, is at Golden State Baptist College, first year in Bible college. We've got some young men there that have been part of our, our, our young men preachers things. I'm going to encourage you to come alongside of me and help encourage our young men. And young men, I want to encourage you young men here tonight to be men of God. I want to encourage you to have a heart for the Lord and to be someone like a Timothy that's well reported of God. And let no man despise thy youth and never say you're too young to serve of God. Hey, listen, Samuel was weaned from his mother, and when he was weaned, the Bible says he started serving God as a little child. Listen, anybody can serve God in the house of God there. So Timothy here is this young man. Time has gone along, and uh, Paul addresses him, notice in verse 2, as his son. In fact, four times Paul addresses him as his son, my own son of the faith, twice here in chapter 1, and then again in 2 Timothy. And then Paul, as we, we go a little bit further, in chapter 6, you might want to turn there for a minute. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. In chapter 6, verse 11, he not only refers to him as, as his son, but I, I appreciate the, the respect and also the confidence Paul had in him. He called him a man of God. Now, he was a young man that he had mentored, but he called him a man of God. He says, but oh, man of God. And, you know, he saw him in a capacity in his calling. He had proven himself in that capacity, and he called him a man of God. Now, as we get a little bit further into scriptures, right, we find some interesting things Paul says about Timothy. Um, he talks about Timothy in, in 1 Corinthians 4.17 as being faithful. He says, I'm sending a faithful man to you. He said, Paul was like a son with the father serving alongside of Paul in the gospel. You know, you, young, you, you fathers here tonight, uh, down deep in your heart, I think you want to see your sons at your side. I think you want to see your sons serving God. I hope that's your desire. And Paul didn't, was not married, didn't have any children, but he called Timothy his son in the faith, and he said to the Philippian believers, he said he's, uh, he serves alongside me as the son of the father. And then he says something very interesting. You know, he said, I'm in prison, and he said, I'm in prison right now at Rome, and he said, uh, what, you know, I need to send somebody back to you. And Paul made the statement, I have no other man like-minded who can represent me to you. I have no other man like-minded who can care for you as well as Timothy. You know, he said, Timothy has my heart. I know in confidence I could send Timothy that he'll come to you with the same heart and caring for you as I would. And that's very unique because Paul knew a lot of men, and he said, I have no other man like-minded on that. And that's just something that comes in the ministry that you find that you're very particular in terms of just young men or someone you're mentoring and who you're going to send to represent you in different ways. Sir. So Timothy 
was a man who was faithful. He was a man who had, that Paul had great confidence in. He's a man that Paul poured his life into. And now as we get to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, we recognize that Timothy is the pastor there at Ephesus. Notice secondly, we look at Timothy. Second, we want you to consider the church at Ephesus. Now the church at Ephesus, we have it mentioned here in First and Second Timothy because Timothy's the pastor. We know about the church at Ephesus because it had its founding in Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19. Paul went down there, did an initial trip. People got saved. He came back in chapter 19. That's when he really went full bloom. Uh, he, he, these men that he found, they had not, they had not received the Spirit of God. And uh, these men, got, they got scripturally baptized. They had been baptized by John the Baptist, but they got scripturally baptized. And that's a great precedent for understanding scriptural baptism. And uh, the things just took off there at Ephesus. I mean, Paul was preaching and things took off. And the Bible says down there in Ephesus, which to, we would call that today the centralization of modern-day Turkey. Today, modern-day Turkey, they knew at that time, is Asia Minor. There, down in Ephesus, the Bible tells in Acts chapter 90, something very dynamic that, that burdens my heart for our church. And he says that all of Asia heard the Word of God in a two-year period of time. So when you take into account that this was by foot travel, all of Asia was all of Asia Minor, we find that during that time when Paul was at Ephesus, that God was sending out men and churches were being started. And we read there that we get to, we get to Revelations 2 and 3, and we find other churches that were established. We go to the book of Colossians, and we find other churches that are established here. So the church at Ephesus, when we read about this, you read the book of Ephesians, it was a dynamic church. It was an on-fire church. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ said this about the church at Ephesus. He commended that church for its works, its labor, its patience, its contending with evil workers and false teachers and false apostles, it endured difficulties, and it did not faint. I mean, you look at the list of things in Revelation 2. He had about eight things he said he commended the church for. Man, you know, one day, as I stand before God for this church, I hope and pray that we're, we're commended for those, some of those things there too because that, those are important things because when you take into account what, 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 what Jesus said about that church, that was important there. But now we get to this church at Ephesus, and I want you to notice some things here. Paul uses some terms. I want you to look at, look at verse 6. I want you to underline this because I'm going to be back at this tonight. He talks about in verse 6, swerving, having swerved and turned aside. You need to underline that verse, that part, part there. Having swerved and turned aside. You need to underline the passage where it says in verse 7, desire to be teachers of the law. Go down a little bit further, you need to underline later on, shipwrecked in verse 18. And having put away concerning faith and made shipwreck. Okay, the church at Ephesus was at a place in, in their ministry where there was drifting. The church was drifting. That's the reason why Paul wrote this letter. The church was drifting. Paul was commanded by God to write to Timothy. Now I want to call you back. And uh, who has the microphone, Pat? Brother Erwin, brother you still here? Brother Erwin, I want you to read this. Brother Erwin, can you read Acts 20, 28 to the church, please? This is not in your notes. I just want you to listen. Brother Erwin's going to read Acts 20, 28. context of that. Acts 20, 28 
These were elders from Ephesus that traveled from Ephesus, which was on the interior, to the sea coastline of Miletus to meet Paul, because Paul didn't have time to go up to Ephesus. So I want you to visualize this. These men come down. Timothy was not one of these men at that moment in time. We don't believe he was one of the pastors at that time. Whoever these pastors were at that time and those various churches there, they came down. And what Werwin just read to you in Acts 20, 28, he told those men, take heed unto yourselves and, and, and the flock over which God has made you the overseers. Now, what we forget sometimes is he also reminded them, verses 29 and 30, brother, and you might want to read that too, verses 29 and 30, he told them about wolves and sheep's clothing coming. Brother Erwin, could you read that, please? Writing your margin tonight on chapter 1, Acts 20, verses 28 to 30. Paul told them, listen. He said, listen. He said, you better take heed to yourself. You better take heed to the flock. You better feed the flock of God. Now, feeding the flock of God, if you study the words in 1 Peter 5, when we, when we talk about feeding, it's taking the leadership and the oversight of the church that sometimes you have to be, as a pastor, you have to be very direct in, in, in overseeing the souls and the needs of the church. And Paul, as he's writing 1 Timothy 1, he's going to be very, he's very, very direct. So when he wrote, when he spoke those words in Acts 20, write this down in your notes, that was four years before this letter was written. That was four years before the letter was written. He warned them that false teachers would arise within their own ranks. He warned them that wolves would arise, not sparing the flock. That's where we're at in 1 Timothy 1. Paul's reason for writing this, and we get the whole context of this in chapter 1, because chapter 1 lays the groundwork here that they're now in the situation where Timothy is way over his head with spiritual problems in the church. And so Paul was commanded by God, I don't know if this is in your notes, but you want to write this down. Paul was commanded by God to write this letter to Timothy to deal with unbiblical doctrines, unbiblical ideas, unbiblical trends, and practices that were happening in the church. Notice in verse 6 the term vain jangling. Do you see that? Vain jangling? Circle that. Vain jangling, I'll tell you, that's like keys that are rattling. Okay? You know what that is? That's the trends and fads that go on in every church age. Trends and fads that go on. We've got trends right now. I'm going to address some of those trends right now tonight with you that we need to be aware of and maybe even be, may even be suddenly in its place in the church right now. And I want you to understand, Paul wrote by command it to, to Timothy. He doesn't start off by saying, well, thank God for this, thank God for that. He was thankful, but he was so burdened in, in his heart, he had to tell Timothy some things that, that, that were happening. And so when we, we look at what's going on, I want you to understand the full context, why Paul wrote to Timothy about, about vain jangling, why he talked about men that were shipwrecked, why he talked about in chapter 2 what the priority of the church is supposed to be when it comes to prayer, why he talked about women professing godliness. In fact, you're going to see two words that, go, that are mentioned nine times separately. Doctrine is mentioned nine times separately. Godliness is mentioned nine times separately. We're going to find in chapter 3, he gives, he gives discussion as he did with Titus about the office of the pastor because there were elders in the church or elders that were there in those other churches that had drifted or they, the qualification by which they were selected or deacons that were not qualified that were in their places. And he had to 
address that issue. And then he had to deal with the issue with women preachers in 1 Timothy 2. All of these were not just because nothing was going on. These were problems in the churches at Ephesus, okay? These were things that, listen, whenever you read the Bible, when he's addressing these, that's because there were problems that were happening there. And God is being very relevant and right to the point and saying we've got to deal with those issues there. There are real problems in the church there. And he goes on by dealing with all these different issues and just the conflicts between the pastor and the church and church and the pastor and what was going on with the lame in the church. So we're going to see all that revealed here in this, in this section. Notice in chapter 1, verse 3, the key thought I want you to look at tonight is he's dealing with godliness and doctrine. And Paul said, you need to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now I want to ingrain in your mind tonight, when you leave this evening, in your mind, it's ingrained in your mind, no other doctrine. There's to be no other doctrine in the church. There's only one doctrine in the church. There's not to be another set of doctrine. There's not to be another set of books. There's not to be another set of practice. There's only one set of doctrine that's supposed to be in the house of God. Now notice four things as we get into this tonight. Number one, I want you to notice the hostile conflict. The hostile conflict. Now, notice in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said this to Timothy. He's twice he tells him, now I've given you a charge. And the word charge means, as I've received commandment of God, I'm giving you a commandment by, by, uh, from God. He says, this charge I commend unto thee. What charge? The same charge that he gives in verse 3. The charge, this charge I commit to thee, according to the prophecies which went before on thee. Now that phrase, the prophecies which went on before thee, I want you to listen to me. The men in the ministry will probably understand and appreciate this. The prophecies that went on before thee means all the ingraining that Paul poured into Timothy, all the spiritual preparation, all the pastoral training, all the pastoral mentoring, all the preaching he heard, all the Bible college training he got. He says the prophecies that went before, notice, not to thee or for thee, but on thee. That's talking about, this is what I ingrained in you, Timothy. He says, everything I taught you, I'm worth, and I'm thinking of Acts chapter 20 for just a minute there. He says, everything I've taught you, he says, I need you to go and buy them by those things you've heard from me, by them, I need you to understand that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Now I want you to understand something tonight. You know this already. Paul is writing to Timothy about spiritual war in the church. Now we're familiar with spiritual war, spiritual battles in our spiritual lives. We know we're at war with the devil. We know that already. We, we know that. We're to put on the whole armor of God. But he's talking to Timothy here, according to verse 18 and, and through the whole context of chapter 1, about a good, about a spiritual war. I'm going to call that a hostile conflict, okay? Now this hostile conflict, a con let me define for you first of all conflict. A conflict is when there's a disagreement, a conflict is when there's a disagreement. Husbands and wives sometimes have conflicts. That's part of marital counseling. Marital counseling is, you know, you're going to have conflicts, okay? And how do you deal with that, okay? Now, a conflict is a disagreement. It's a disagreement on principles. It's a disagreement on preferences. It's a disagreement on practices. It's a disagreement on priorities. For the sake of our conversation tonight, because I wanted to line everything up, the word principles is going to apply to doctrine. So there was a conflict going on at the church at Ephesus. It was a very serious conflict, as we'll see in a minute. And uh, there are two kinds of conflicts I want you to write down tonight. There are conflicts that are resolvable. Now, let me encourage you tonight, in every marriage, you ought to have conflicts that you resolve. Okay? There shouldn't, there, I mean, that's just the biblical way. Conflicts should be resolvable. Okay? Every conflict in a marriage should be resolvable. But there's another kind of conflict. There are conflicts that are resolvable, and there are conflicts that need to be removed. 
And the conflicts we're going to see here in the church are conflicts that need to be removed. These are things that need to be thrust at, thrusted out of the church here. So I want you to see that tonight. Paul is exhorting Timothy and conflicts need to be removed. Now, what are these conflicts? I want you to see two of them. And this is, this is found in every church age. This happens in every church. This happens in every situation. The first one is the conflict of dominion. The conflict of dominion. I want you to look at verse 7 with me. Actually, verse 6 and 7. Paul said, he told Timothy in verse 3, he said, I need you to charge some, and he's going to get specific about this as we scroll down, that they teach no other doctrine. Now, now, I want you to think with me for a minute. There were people in the church, as we look at verses 6 and 7, that were teaching other doctrines. And you notice in verse 6, he's describing this. He says, from, some, from which some have swerved, having turned aside into vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. That's another way of saying they don't know what they're talking about. Now, when I talk about dominion, I'm talking about control. I'm talking about influence. Teachers have influence. Teachers influence opinions. Teachers influence behavior. Teachers influence preferences and doctrine. And so tonight, there's a lot of Sunday school teachers missing tonight. I need, need one of you guys to take count who aren't here because they need to hear this tonight. They're going to hear it again. Desiring to be teachers of the law. So some of these men who were entrusted with teaching, Paul describes them in verse 6. Now I'm going somewhere. Just please bear with me tonight. In verse 6, he said, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside. Now how many of you have ever driven and you made these abrupt turns? Or you've been in a car as a pastor and someone made an abrupt turn and said, where are we going? You know, Whoa, what's going on here? Okay, What he's saying there, it's a nautical term. As someone on a ship, because they didn't have cars in those days, they had chariots, and a little bit tough to make a, to swerve with a chariot. You could do it, but on a ship, you're making a swerve. And he's talking about here in verse 6, there were some in their, in their, in their direction, they, they swerved, they turned aside. In other words, they were going straight in their direction, and they turned abruptly in another way. They turned suddenly and immediately in a different way. And it says they got off a direct or straight course. Now, another way of defining this is saying they strayed or missed the mark or they erred. They missed the mark or they erred. And so he says they have swerved and having turned aside, swerved to what? They were, they were attracted to vain jangling. Now, vain jangling, if you just came in, vain jangling, I described this way. Vain jangling, think with me, the rattling of keys, okay? Vain jangling is, is kind of like when you hear somebody rattle their keys, it kind of just, you know, catch your attention. It's some trendy thought. It's some new concept or idea that comes out there that catches people's ideas. Now, I hope a lot of you aren't reading a lot of the junk that's out there, but there's some of this crazy stuff that is out there. Like, for instance, there's a term that I just ran across. I ran across a couple years ago. I ran across the other day and just doing some reading, incarnational ministry. And the new evangelicals, by the way, we're not a new evangelical. We're independent fundamental Baptists. Okay, 
What, that's what we are because it's based on what we believe. And some of you are afraid of identifying yourself with a Baptist. Hey, Baptist is Bible, Bible is Baptist, okay? If you're not comfortable with that, just say we're, we're biblical for now until you grow in grace and understand that we're, we're, we're Baptist and we're not ashamed of being Baptist. We're ba- I'm a Baptist with a capital B, a big capital B, okay? And if you're, not, if you're ashamed of being a ca- Baptist, then you need to go right, go back through, you need to go back through new members orientation once again and so we can help you understand that and take you through a whole chart. We bought a whole large map of that helps you understand the whole, the whole history of the Baptist church. You understand the blood that was shed along the way there. But let me say this tonight. It means here in verse 6 that in vain jangling that they, these teachers, they, there were these heresies and new concepts coming out, and I'm going to call them heresies. Paul didn't, but I'm going to call them heresies that came out that basically were trawling people's attentions. And we're going to see three of them tonight in our study that were calling, calling their attention, and, and they were swerving off track. Okay? Now, I, I, I'm not a prophet but I have enough of, I think I have enough of a sense of the gift of prophecy. I, I notice when things are moving off track there a little bit, and that's very concerning, to be honest with you. I get a little more antsy about that, and I'm not getting nervous or off in the flesh here, but you get a little, you get a little nervous when you see things going off track there, when they're not on the road. It's kind of like when you're driving, and the guy next to you is kind of swerving over into your, your, your lane. They're crossing over. You get a little nervous about it, do you not? Okay? And if they're, if they're crossing your lane, maybe they're too busy texting or talking or whatever, they don't realize you're there. These people, they were doing it perfectly. Purposely. They swerved to, and they were being attracted as they were swerving under this vain jangling and trendy thoughts that were going on. So here are some things they'll say, things like this. They'll say, hey, what about this podcast? What about this teacher on the internet? What about this book over here? What about this person here? I was, I was preaching for Tim Rasmussen a number of years ago on a Wednesday night, and I was coming back, and one of the men, one of his staff members was driving me back, and he was asked, pumping me with a lot of questions. He said, my pastor told me to drive you back and pump you with a lot of questions. He said, would help me in the ministry? And I said, well, I'll do my best to help you. I'm not sure if I can tell you anything. I said, you got a great pastor. I think everything you need to know, he probably taught you. And this guy, just like a lot of young guys do who are not very, very trained in the ministry, he started asking, what do you know about this teacher here? And what do you know about this teacher here? And I tried to be very kind. Finally, after asking about the fourth or fifth one, I said, can I teach some young man? He said, what? I said, leave him alone. That's vain jangling. Okay, what about this? And what about that? Or what about this thing here? What about the teaching here? What about this guy here? Or what about this guy here? He used to be associated with this preacher over here, and now he's over here, and, he, and he's, he's, he's emphasizing these things over here. That's vain jangling. When you get off on these rabbit trails on something that really have nothing to do with the gospel, there, okay? You say, was that a problem? Yeah, it was a problem, because it permeated the church at Ephesus, and it permeates every church that's out there there. Now, you watch this tonight, okay? So, number one, he's talking about those who serve. Notice, secondly, here's what I'm going to uh, get about dominion and control. He says, it says, desire to be teacher of the law. Now, here's what happens. Drift occurs, drift occurs when someone in an influential capacity is trying to be persuasive through the use of their personality or through their words or through what they say. You're a teacher. If, you're, if you have an influential position, you are a teacher by your words. You influence people by your personality and by your words. And if you're trying to draw people to yourself, which is what Paul told those elders at Ephesus about, they're going to draw men into themselves, disciple themselves, then they're using their influence to, to their own benefit, to the, not to the glory of God. They want to give their ideas. And if you'll notice here, and let me read this here. He says that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. They desire to be teachers of the law. Now we're going to get into salvation in a minute, but basically they felt like, you know what, Timothy, you're not doing, you're not exactly declaring the whole counsel of God. So because we have a better articulation or a better eloquence about the matter, we're going to stand up and we're going to find this place. So they kind of worked their way saying, would you trust me with this? And again, they didn't have all the protocols and they didn't have all the standards we have today and they didn't have the proving methods we had today. They're kind of working through all of that back in that day. And they were a little bit more trusting than probably I would be during this day, but they were a little more trusting about things. 
And so they, they allow people to get in, then they realize they didn't vet the guy enough, they didn't prove him enough, they didn't really check him out to make sure his doctrine's straight and his life is straight. And the Bible says these people have gotten to place and position in this great church at Ephesus from which men went out and the word of God spread around all of Asia in two years' time. Now this church is going backwards. It's drifting in its way. And Paul said, listen, I'm writing by the commandment of God. You've got to deal with the issue. And the first thing you've got to deal with is that there's, there's a people in positions of leadership who are in control, people who have capacity over other people or control over other people that are directing their mindset. They're teaching on any level, any kind of capacity where people ask you for your opinion or ask you for direction, teaching on any level. You have control, influence, or dominion over that person if they follow you in that capacity. But remind you tonight, leadership in a local New Testament church is a trust given from God to the pastor to those under the pastor that's given to you. It is not your right. It is not your mission. Let me tell you tonight, those people in that church, those people in this church, those people in that Sunday school class, those people in that discipleship class, those people on that bus, those people no matter where they are, they are not your sheep. They're the heritage of God, and I'm responsible for them because I have to give an account before God, before them. When you don't think I don't sweat some bullets tonight, take a look at the gray hair on top of my head right now. I sweat some bullets on that. And listen, when they're getting other persuasion and other thoughts right now, it grieves my thought to wonder how many people are going to leave the church, how many people are going to go sideways on something, or they're going to follow your cute little personality because you desire to be a teacher of the law there. So Paul is saying here, I want to tell you something here tonight. He says, you know, Timothy, I know your personality. I know where you're at, but you've been supplanted, son. You've been supplanted by those who want to be teachers of the law. They've gotten to place, and they're basically saying, listen, they want to, they want to take over things. There's a hostile conflict. Paul said something to Timothy that would help you and me. Did you notice if you went in verse, um, verse 12, Paul in writing to Timothy, he's working through this, and all this is cohesive there. In verse 12, he says, I remind you, Timothy, I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord, every day. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful. Can I tell you something tonight? If you're entrusted with position, thank God you were faithful. Stay faithful. Amen. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. You didn't amen tonight. You're not faithful. Be faithful. So number one, I want to see this hostile conflict began with dominion, control, manipulation. Secondly, there was a conflict of dominion. We're still in the first point. Secondly, there's a conflict of doctrine. <clears throat> so notice two things Paul does in verse 3. First thing he says, I besought thee. Now the word besought, if you've studied your Bible, if you, if you do any Greek studies on the word, it's the word parakaleo. The word paraclete is the word that describes the Holy Spirit as the comforter. What does para mean? Come alongside of, right? Anytime you see the word para, it's come alongside of, okay? So parakaleo is a good word. In fact, parakaleo is used sometimes to refer to how someone prays, okay? So parakaleo means literally, I beg you. I beseech you. I pray you, okay, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a passionate, uh, uh, a passionate appeal that a person's making. And he says, Timothy, number one, in, in this matter of doctrine, he says, number one, you need to stay at Ephesus. Now, he wanted to leave. He was like Titus. He didn't want to stay. I mean, he just, he says, man, I've got a mess to fix here. I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I, I thought the ministry was just winning souls and discipling people and training leaders. He said, I didn't know I have to deal with these problems here. And Paul said, Timothy, you need to stay there. He says, you're the pastor of the church. You need to stay there. You need to stay with this situation. You need to stay at Ephesus. And so he was over his head there. Paul said, number one, you need to stay there. Notice number two. Look at verse three. He said, when I went to Macedonia, <clears throat> I said, I told you to stay there when I went to Macedonia. 
He said, here's what you need to do. He told him to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, Paul was fully aware, and we're going to see this. This is unfolding. This is the way you understand all of 1 Timothy tonight. Paul is going to tell him, look, I already know there's other doctrines being taught here. Now, first thing pops up in your mind, first thing pops in your mind, in my mind, when I, read, when I read something about no other doctrine, I'm thinking doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I'm doctrine of the church, I'm thinking about doctrine of the second coming, you know, these, these, these areas where there's, there people tend to stray and have different ideas because maybe because of they're reading the wrong author, things like that, not reading the Bible. And so different doctrine had permeated the church. It wasn't making its way in the church. It had made its way in the church, okay? And it was affecting people's, it was affecting people's minds and thinking. Now, write this down, please. Doctrine is a set of beliefs that we adhere to. Doctrine is what we believe, okay? Now, doctrine's important because Doctrine is what we're all about. Nine times in this book, Paul references the doctrines that important. In six chapters, nine different times. I can give you the references in a moment here. He, he references the doctrine in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 5, verse 17, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 3. And he says things like this. He talks about chapter 1, verse 10, sound doctrine. Uh, later on in chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about doctrines of devils. Uh, later on, he talks about good doctrine, chapter 6. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, he talks about the doctrine according to godliness. Now, doctrine's important. Doctrine's important. You don't have doctrine, you're not going to last as a church. Doctrine's what we believe. Doctrine's what we need to emphasize. I don't get tired of teaching doctrine. In fact, I love to teach doctrine. Okay? Doctrine's important. That's how you feed your soul. Listen, a lot of you need to get grounded in doctrine. You need to know what we believe. But doctrine not only is what we believe, doctrine affects how we behave. Now doctrine, listen to me tonight, this is how, this, this is how things are supposed to, to, to make its way in our lives. Doctrine should affect you that you believe it, and doctrine becomes a conviction. A conviction is something you believe so strongly in, you would die for it. If you would not die for it, it's a preference. It's not a conviction. Okay? If you're not going to die for it, you're not going to die for the gospel. The gospel is a preference to you. It's not a conviction. Now, if you read chapter 1, it's a conviction with Paul. He calls it the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute, okay? Doctrine is what we believe. And what we believe gives us conviction. But conviction is carried out through a standard. That's why churches have to have standards. Now, people cringe and get scared of standards. Standards are good because standards are biblical. But standards without doctrine, standards without a conviction, are the cart before the horse. So standards is how we exercise and live out what we think, what we read. Now, some of you read through the book, Change Into His Image, okay? If you haven't read it, you need to get the book, Change Into His Image. He talks about that there. He does a good job of explaining that. And some of you need to get that book and read, read it and go through it. So you understand by Jim Berg. It's a great thought to help you to understand, you know, how, how we develop doctrine, how doctrine becomes our belief and belief becomes our conviction and conviction leads to our standards. Now, watch this. This church started out with good doctrine. This church here started with good doctrine. Those who desire to be teachers of the law, they came in. Paul, Paul gave some prophetic announcements. They're going to come in. They're, and by the way, they come into every church. And he says they're going to come in, and they're going to work their way through, and it's going to affect how people, what they believe and how they behave. Listen tonight, and I'm going to give you some instances tonight. What you believe affects how you behave. Doctrine determines duty. Doctrine affects your devotion. Why what you believe affects your behavior. So Paul's writing about this all here in chapter 1. Now notice something else here. Paul says, teach them that, that you need to charge them that they teach no other doctrine. In other words, stops right here. No other doctrine. 
Then he goes on, notice verse 4. He says, tell them with that, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, okay? That's where a lot of these, these trendy things do. They just minister questions. They don't edify anybody's soul. And he says, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. Okay, now watch this. Second thing he's going to address here about this doctrine. He's addressing what we believe. He's addressing how we behave. Now, what's the behavior he's talking about? The word godliness. What he's affecting here is the word godliness because godliness is mentioned nine times in the book of 1 Timothy as well there too. Why? Because when you drift in your doctrine, you're going to drift in your godliness. When you drift in your godliness, you're away from God. When you get away from God, you're going to lose your authority as a local New Testament church. So there was a conflict going on. It was there. Paul knew the personalities. Paul couldn't, Paul, this, Paul couldn't get there to help solve the problem. If Paul wasn't in prison, he would have gone there to solve the problem. He couldn't go there to solve the problem. He had to deal with Timothy. He said, Timothy, then he spiritual authority to deal with it. I realize you may feel like you're way over your head. This is something you weren't trained for, but you're going to have to deal with it, son. He says, number one, you need to charge them. You need to tell them. You need to drop the bomb and let them know. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine and tell them, listen, all these things you're doing, this vain jangling and these fables and endless questions about genealogies, all this stuff, he says, all it does is just minister more questions that just results in endless questions that does, ha, doesn't satisfy anybody's soul. And he says the end result is there's no godly edifying. The people's not getting built up. That's why I'm going to tell you tonight, if you're searching podcasts, you're, you're fooling around, listen to some new evangelical teacher. They deal with, they deal with all these trendy thigh ideas and questions of the day, and they want to get you percolating on something else and get you sidetracked. And the end result is you've got more questions than you've got answers. Listen, the day, when the day comes, you've got more questions, and you're not looking at the answer. This is the answer right here. You're not looking at the answer. You've gone off, you've swerved aside. You've swerved aside. So notice Paul talks about the hostile conflict. We're in the Bible study tonight. Notice number two. People in the church are being influenced by other ideas. <clears throat> and it was affecting their peers, their friends. Now, and secondly, I want you to go back to what I started with. Number one, we saw the, we saw the, the, the hostile conflict. Number two, I want you to see the heavenly commandment. <clears throat> Paul said in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior. Now, he's not just talking about his authority. He's talking about what God called, what God wanted, why God wanted to write this letter. And he told Timothy in verse 3, and again in verse 18, this charge I commit to thee, he says, okay? So notice some things here. Where, where did Paul get his authority? Because maybe you're someone who questions Paul's authority. Now, or where did Timothy get his authority from? Okay, now, well, we know Paul got his authority from God, but what about Timothy? Well, I want you to see some things. He says, I'm writing to you, Timothy, he says in verse 2, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, he didn't write that to be flower in his language. In verse 2, verse 1 and 2, he's addressing the authority Timothy had as a pastor in, 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 the, in the command given to him. Number one, that, that, author, that his, the authority that he, that he was responsible to, the authority in his life was God our Father. Number two, the authority in his life was the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, his authority was Paul, who was, his, who was the apostle, and Paul, who was his mentor. Number four, he had an authority to the local church. He was responsible for the local church. Paul, like, Timothy had four spiritual authorities he had to resp respond to. God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the local New Testament church, and Paul, who was his mentor. He had to respond to them. Until Paul is writing to him, he says, listen, I'm writing to you by commandment, but he says, I want you to understand the authority that you're under. It wasn't just, it wasn't Paul just saying, you got to do this because it makes me feel good. He's saying, you need to deal with this issue in the church there because you're under four different authorities right now as a, as a minister of God. He says, you're under God the Father, you're under the Lord Jesus Christ, you're under the local church at Ephesus, and you're under my authority as the one who sent you and 
prepared you, and we laid hands on you and put you in that capacity there, okay? So notice what's going on here. First of all, he tells the authority by which Timothy was given this command. Secondly, would you write this down? This commandment was very clear. In this commandment, he told Timothy in verse 3, charge some. Now, when he said some, it wasn't like some ethereal out there, who are these some? They knew who those some were. He didn't have to name them. They'd already talked about them. In fact, there are two of them are named right here. Three, actually three, the third one's mentioned in 2 Timothy. And there were others like that. And some were not as probably as pesky and as probably problematic as, as, as the two that he mentions here in chapter 1. But he says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, I want to give you some thoughts here. He says there are other doctrines being introduced into the church that need to be dealt with. And I'm going to bring it down where I'm going to talk about tonight, where it's relevant to where you and I are at this evening, so you understand some things tonight, okay? Number one, would you notice the first doctrine he's dealing with is the doctrine of salvation and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, anywhere Satan's going to attack, it's always going to attack the doctrine of salvation. Let me tell you why. Number one, the devil doesn't want to see people saved. Okay, number one, the devil doesn't want to see people saved. Number two, the devil wants to kill every soul winning program of a church. Now, I, I'm gonna, I plead with you tonight. I, I'm going to give you a parakaleo tonight. I beg you, I beg you tonight, I beg you tonight, please get a heart for winning souls. I beg you tonight. I beg you to get a heart for it. I'm not talking about we, we have feeder programs and bring people in the church and you get the opportunity to win it. So I'm thankful for that because we need more people to do that. I'm telling you, get outside the community. Do you understand what's happening in our community right now? Last 10 people my wife and I have witnessed to or together, and they're not just Chinese people. Last 10 we've done, their, their cultural mindset, you, you keep, the Romans Road is not, gonna, is not a starting point. For, we gotta be careful. I don't wanna say the Romans Road doesn't work. The Romans Road is not a starting point for these people. They're, they're gonna, they're gonna this a long it's a long, drawn-out process. Can't even do Bible studies to understand who God is. We met with one yesterday and said, this person said, well, I don't believe a person has a soul. I think when you die, you just die, and that's it. There's nothing there. And they said, first time I ever heard there's a soul. I'm glad I came to church here to find out that this is going on here. But there are people that believe things like that. There are people that just, they're, they, they profess to be agnostic. They're not really sure there's a God, but, they, they, but you know, they, they have all these weird ideas, and they want to tell you about what somebody else read. I mean, you try to get them to read the Bible, so you've got to keep working on to get them to read the Bible. And do you realize that the, if, Muslim, if Islam is the fact fastest growing religion. Are you prepared? Am I prepared to win Muslims to Christ and get them into the church? Are we prepared to do what it takes to get to these people? I'm just saying tonight, you better understand where our culture is going right now because our culture is going far from what, it, what we started out with 20 years ago and we got to be prepared and ready for it. If you don't have a heart for souls, listen, what's going to happen? We're going to go from evangelization to fossilization as a church here. So watch what happens here. Paul's writing to them, and he says, first thing I want you to understand, there's this doctrine of salvation. Notice what he talks about here. He, and he does not, and he's writing on this, he says now, he says, and, and he's talking about the, those who desire to be teachers of the law. Now, the, te the, the, the legalism issue they had to deal with those days were those Jews who wanted them to go back. They didn't want to depart from the Judaistic practices of faith. They didn't want to leave the ceremonies and, and the blood, and they didn't want to leave all the rituals and all of those things. I mean, there was something glorious about seeing all that. I mean, people are entranced with, with, with all these, these things they have to see, the physical they have. And so, so he says, they desire to be teachers of law. They want to take you back. And you've got to add law and works to grace. And you don't need to add law. Listen, before by grace you're saved through faith. You don't need the law, amen? Now, he said the law is good. Don't get me wrong. The law shows us what we are. And the law shows us that, that it was made for, for the lawless and disobedient. He lists all those things in verse 9 and 10, which I don't have time to get into tonight. But I want to say tonight, he says that. And then we get to verse 11. According, sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, listen tonight. The 
The gospel is what we're all about. The gospel is what we're all about. The gospel saves. The gospel is about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, I love the gospel because of the blessed, the glorious gospel. That's what we're all about. Listen, I'm a gospel-preaching pastor. I'm a gospel, this is a gospel-preaching church. And listen, I want to be careful and use the term gospel-centered because the term gospel-centered has been taken down a different path to represent lifestyle evangelism. And I don't, want, I don't want to be misrepresented in that case or misrepresent you in that case. But I want to tell you tonight, the gospel of Jesus Christ still works. It still saves. It saves from the uttermost to the guttermost. I still remind you tonight, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to tell people about Jesus. Jesus. I'm not ashamed to give the gospel out to people. We need to realize tonight, yes, thank God for everything we do, but the primary emphasis and the wheel that turns the car is realizing we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. He said the gospel is glorious. He's going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But two things hamper the gospel. Would you write this down, please? Remember he said, in, remember he talked about here vain jangling, those who swerved aside? Remember that? Here's the trend. These are trends. Trendy thoughts. Vain jangling is trends. Number one, there's the trend to lessen evangelism, to lessen confrontational soul winning, to lessen going to the highways and hedges and compelling them to come in that my house may be filled. There's a trending of lesser, of going out to the innermost parts of the earth. There's a trending of lessening of evangelism. Why? Because as I said earlier, the devil hates soul winning. The devil hates people getting saved. The devil hates gospel preaching churches there. I'm going to tell you tonight, he hates this church. And so what happens there? The trending right now is the reinfiltration of Calvinism. The reinfiltration of Calvinism is saying the belief there, which is basically all comes out of Protestantism and Presbyterianism, okay? This didn't come out of Baptist circles. You say, what about Reformed Baptists? Reformed Baptists, they're not Baptists. Reformed Baptists, they got Reformed. They need to get regenerated. That's their problem. Reformed Baptists are not biblical. They're not doctrine sound. Reformed Baptists have ruined China. Reformed Baptists have ruined most of the Asian countries by taking Calvin's Institutes and giving it to these pastors who need tools and, and books and Bibles and things, which is why we're highly supportive of trying to get things, things into the hands of the preachers there overseas. And what they do is they, they, elevate, they elevate Calvin over God and they elevate the Calvin's Institutes and principles over the Word of God. We were in debate in China over that. And where these men, they revere Calvin's Institutes over the Word of God. There's no point of discussing anything, trying to straighten these guys out. If you don't revere God first, you're, there's, they're not correctable. They're, they're people that are just incorrigible, spiritually speaking, and you can't change them there. And so Calvinism is saying, we believe that God is the elected son to be saved and not be saved. Now you stay with me. When we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, I'm going to take you some of the problematic verses that Calvinists are using and how they're taking those verses out of context to try to, try to draw to seven themselves. Let me tell you something tonight. Calvinists are cowards. Calvinists, they work their way surreptitiously through a church and finding their way through it, being teachers of the law, finding their way in classrooms and sideline discussions and chat rooms and internet discussions and other way methodologies through social media to tell people subtly, what did you know that, you know, that, that uh, there is such a thing as limited atonement and Jesus only died for the elect? And did you know that there is such a thing as unconditional election, that God, that God has elected some to go to heaven and some to go to hell? And didn't you know, didn't you know that, that there's the total inability of men that they'll incorrectly take Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 and they'll say, well, the Bible says you 
you're dead in trespass and sin. And the Calvinists believe, they, and this goes back to John Calvin, they believe under that context, they believe that we're, the man is so dead in sins that he cannot believe. He's so spiritually dead that he cannot believe on for himself. So therefore, that's why God has conditionally elected son to be saved and, and not to be saved. And then they say, they'll say someone, don't you realize that the grace of God that brings salvation, that's irresistible grace. Those who are elected, they cannot resist the grace of God. And don't you know that they believe in the perseverance of the saints? They believe that you've got to persevere your way to, listen, everything they got is unbiblical. It's unbiblical doctrine there. And what it does, when Calvinism comes in church, it destroys the church. And you listen to me tonight. The larger this church gets, and the more people get on the marketplace, and the more they go on the internet, they're following some crazy internet teacher that's advocating Calvinism. And I'll tell you tonight, if you smell a Calvinist, they're worse than a skunk. They're worse than anything that smells. They're worse than durian, if I can say that tonight. Amen? Calvinism is poison in a church. It's cancer to a church body. You need to know what you believe about salvation. That's why I preach on Sunday morning. How, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So these, this, this trendy stuff that I'm talking about tonight, they get their influences, and I wish I could tell you, their Bible college is dealing with it, about Dr. Ron Comfort, who preached for our church, started in Ambassador Baptist College. Dwight Smith, how many remember Dwight Smith? Dwight Smith was a student at that time. Alton Beale, who's now the, pa the, the president, was a student at that time. He had four teachers in the Bible department who would never talk to Dr. Comfort to his face, would never tell him, or the board of directors who included men like Dr. Mike Edwards and Pastor Mike Norris and godly men, I mean great men of God who preach in our pulpit here. Tom Farrell, they would never have the courage to go, but they surreptitiously and cowardly, in a cowardly manner, went around those men and through their classrooms, were corrupting students. By the time Dr. Comfort found out in 1991, 1992 what was going on, they almost lost half their college there. Calvinism is a poison. You're reading that Calvinistic stuff, you better throw it away. So I, that's why I'm going to tell you tonight, before you go buy some study books and things like that, you better come check with me first because you don't realize the majority of the writers out there in the marketplace are Calvinistic in their thinking. Majority of them out there. When I say majority, you say, what's the number? I would dare to say even 90%. Because everything influencing modern-day Christianity is Protestantism. We are not Protestants. We're Baptists. And so these influential teachers were getting up and lessening evangelism and, and watering down salvation there and saying, salvation by grace through faith is not enough. You have to add some good works to what you're doing. Hey, that's why the Campbellites came along. And the Campbellites, uh, now that they know it's the Church of Christ, they, they advocate baptismal regeneration, that you need to get baptized, and they advocate that you can lose your salvation and all these kind of things like that. I mean, you've got to know what you believe. Listen, that's why the doctrine of salvation, soteriology is so important. You've got to know it from A to Z, exactly what you believe and what's going on with that matter there. But there's a second one I want to give you about. That, that most of you guys are okay with this one, but listen to this second one here. Put your seatbelts on. The other, the other doctrine they were advocating was a twisting of salvation. The other doctrine that was being twisted was the doctrine of ecclesiology or the doctrine of the local church. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> Paul said in chapter 3, verse 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. These teachers, and they're mentioned in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, there were others. 
I believe there were some women teachers that were in the church that were supplanting the leadership of Timothy. I believe there were some laymen that were there supplanting the leadership of Timothy because he said, charge some. And I want to say some things tonight about ecclesiology of local church. Number one, we're local church and not universal church. Universal church has this concept where everybody belongs to one big church, one big organization. And so we got a universal pastor, whoever that is, okay? We have, uh, we have a universal baptism. And, so, and some of those get to the place where they're not people that have physical problems where they have to stay home and they, they, they have no choice but to watch my live stream. These people are just so thinking lazy. They don't want, they don't want to get up and go to churches, stay in their underwear and so forth like that and watch, watch, watch the streams, the services live stream. They, they, look at, they look at David Jeremiah one minute and they go over the other one. They go over to Andy Stanley on the other one and they go over here and Charles Stanley on the other one. And they go over here to this other guy over here and then they want to get something motion. So they look at the Pentecostal T.D. Jakes over here. I mean, just, that's what they're doing there. We're not universal church. We're local church. We're not one part of one big happy family. This is your family. Okay? Let me say this tonight. You can only have your membership in one church. Now, I was asked this question. You listen to me tonight. I was asked a question by one of our very, very sincere members who are new to the church. They said, well, pastor, you know, uh, our old church I said, well, your old church? What about your old church? I said, well, our old church is having an anniversary. Is it wrong for me to go there? I said, where's your membership at? I wasn't being mean. I just said, where's your membership at? I said, so, okay, so, so let's say I just say, well, I, I give you grace and say, well, that's your decision. What, what message are you send to your children when you're going back over there? You said, well, you don't understand. The old pastor there, where's your membership at? You said, well, that's pretty hard. No, that's being biblical. That's being biblical. Some of you need to make a decision. This is your church. You signed an article. You signed off on the Articles of Faith. You signed off on a membership covenant. You better go back and review that. In fact, it's back in, the, in, in our old hymnals in the back there. You better decide you're in this church all the way or decide whether or not you're, gonna, you're, or you're out of fellowship with God. If you're not in the church all the way, you're out of fellowship with God. You ought to decide tonight, this is your, this night I went over to the staff today, we're, we're going over some planning for next year, some very heavy things I just had to unload my heart with them about, and I said, I want to start off, I want to talk to you about some strengths, and, and we, we listed a number of good things about the church, and we were just thanking God for and giving God the glory for, but some of you need to sit down before Thanksgiving, and you need to make a list of everything that God has blessed his church with, and where we're at, and think about all the strengths of the church, and say, you know what, you need to stop and say, well, you know what, thank God for all these things here, because there are a lot of churches that don't have those things, and God has, a lot, has trusted us with those things there. But you're a local church, okay? If you're getting up and going, you're gone for a whole Sunday because you're helping some other church celebrate. I don't, I don't understand that. This is, listen, okay, that's, not, that's like, this, you know what that's like? Brother A.G., you know what that's like? That's, I'm married to Grace Fong. That's like telling Grace Fong, hey, you know what? I got this old girlfriend back here from 25 years ago. I'm going to go hang out with her because it's her birthday. What do you think my wife's going to do? She's going to take one of my guns and shoot me. In fact, she'll take all my guns and shoot me, okay? Because she knows where everything's at. That's exactly what you're doing when you're, when you're that's what you're doing. And that's what God told Israel about. He said, you're committing spiritual adultery. You say you love me, and you're doing the ceremonies and all these things, but then you go up on your rooftop, and you're worshiping all these other gods. What are you doing? Now, I'm not done yet. That's just a warm-up, amen? The local church is your, one of your spiritual authorities. And these men who desire to be teaching law, they got outside the context of spiritual authorities. Then you notice this, the, the, the first church service was on what day? 
the Lord's Day, the first official service was that Sunday night. And Jesus came to them. I realize I've got to break this up here. It's already 8.30. He came to them with peace. He commissioned them. He breathed on them the Holy Ghost. But conspicuous on Sunday evening, just like every church has, on conspicuous on the Sunday evening, one of the apostles wasn't there. His name was Thomas. He wasn't there. Now, in his context, <laughs> he was hurting. Jesus had died. His morale was shattered. Not giving him, I'm not giving plaudits to the man for that. But listen to me tonight. The trend, the trend, the trend I said about salvation, a lessing of the gospel, a lessing of, of evangelism, things like that, okay? Here's a trend. It's in our church. It's happening right now. And the trend outside of places, other churches. Here's the trend. Some of you are like Thomas. Jesus can't find you in the church when the church assembles. And you're a teacher. Then I wonder why there aren't students coming in. That thou might charge them, they teach no other doctrine. Did you know you don't have to teach doctrine through your mouth? You teach doctrine through your life. By your example. People do what people see. And if you, if you realize that's your propensity, guess what? You're not going to touch that topic there because you know that you're not doing it, so you just kind of let it go until I bring it up at the pulpit. The trend. Let me give you this. The growing and alarming trend. Members missing church. Special events, special services. Now, I guess maybe we're not doing a good job of getting the calendar out and telling people in advance what's going on because people just plan their calendars, everything around. All these special events, things, they're missing all the different stuff. I don't I know, maybe we're just doing a bad job. At that. I'll take responsibility for them. But I'll tell you tonight, man, if you've you got a local church you love, I mean, we try to be conscious. In fact, we're cutting down some things next year just to be a little more conscious. I was going to plan a couple more evangelistic events, but God's been working in my heart about that. I just okay, well, will really, we'll really help us that much more? Maybe we should just put more emphasis on one. It's over there. We're trying to be conscientious of everybody's schedule. But the truth of the matter is, I don't browbeat you guys and tell you, you got to be at soul winning every week. And they, I, if you were under Jack Treber or Paul Chapel, guys like that, man, they would require, if you're a teacher, you guys would already be disqualified. Half, more three-fourths you'd be disqualified. You wouldn't be serving in the church because you're not there every week there. I'm not even like half my friends that are out there. I'm trying to exercise some graces. Okay, I realize you got Saturday's the only day some of our people have days off, and I realize we're in a two-hour commute society and all this kind of stuff, and I'm trying to exercise some grace on that and trying to realize what's going on. But then at the same time, I don't hardly see some of you guys until I say something from the pulpit about it. Don't get mad at me. You know this is right. You know what you signed on for. And you say it's your church, but you're not there and we need you there. But I, don't, I don't get it. And then we have second recorded Sunday night service was at Troas. Paul's preaching his heart. It's the only time he's going to be there. And the guy falls out, falls out the church. And that, that, that's no laughing matter. We laugh, but it's no laughing matter. People fall out of church during preaching. You follow a fellowship with God during preaching. I just learned something about that. The devil's working hard against everybody that's sitting in a service when there's a preaching of the Word of God. You know why? And you know why the new evangelicals have gone the way they have? It's affecting even our Baptist culture right now. I'll tell you why. Because what happens, people come and say, oh, yeah, we know what we're going to do. We're going to have the same thing. And, you know, this is, why, this is probably why a third people could be here on Wednesday night, but they're not going to be here. But they'll come because we have a special revival next week because Brother Rossi's coming. And Brother Rossi's a dynamic speaker and all that kind of stuff. And so they'll come out and they'll say, yeah, well, you know, we're just going to have preaching. And, and, you know, we're going to sing some songs. And, and, you know, we're going to have this. We're going to take the offering. I, I think I could watch my live stream so forth like that. And the Bible says not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. 
and so much more as you see the day approaching. When I was in college, I didn't get saved in a Baptist church, but the gospel, the gospel was preached there in the church I got saved in. I need to finish this. I'm going to finish one more, then I'll let you go. I know it's a little late, but you better hear me tonight. Jesus might come tonight. When I was in college, in Sector College, I had about a dozen uh, college students, and we were very close in terms of just hanging out together. I'll just say hanging out. I don't want to use the term fellowship. We're just hanging out together. And, uh, and I'll just name the church. I'll just tell you this, okay? Neighborhood church was the church in, in, in the whole Bay Area at that time. Joseph Bellick was the pastor. Joseph Bellick went to Southern Baptist Seminary with Lee Robertson. How many know Dr. Lee Robertson? He went to, work, he went to school with Dr. Lee Robertson. He, went, he, he, he swerved, okay? Jacob Bellick swerved. And they'd have these entertainers come in. I call them entertainers. They did, at that time, we called them music groups. And there's this group that came in, interesting enough, they were called the Heritage Singers. It had nothing to do with Heritage Baptist Church, okay? And if you go back to the day, the Heritage Singers, they had, they had you know, this is back in the day of, you know, records and all that kind of stuff there, which is ancient. That's in a museum somewhere, okay? That was the thing. And I remember that group I was with, the first two times this group came in town, they come twice a year, first two times they came, hey, let's skip out on Sunday night, go over there and hear, yes, we're great, you know, all, we're universal church and all that kind of stuff. I didn't, I didn't understand local church about all that matter there. You know what God did to me? And, I, and again, I'm just thankful how the grace of God worked in my life. I sat there and listened to this group singing, and, and you know, God started working in my heart that Sunday night. I went back home, and I picked up a sword of the Lord. It happened to be the sword of the Lord. At that time, Dr. John R. Rice was, was the writer. And I read some things about the local church, and I started looking through the advertising of all the local churches. God gave me conviction about my, my membership, about being a, lo, a member of a local New Testament church. And I made a decision, and a lot of my friends turned from me. I, they said, the next time the Heritage Singers came, hey, Fong, you going to go with us? No. What's the matter, man? Are you, you're, not, you're not into partying? I said, no. I said, guys, we're members of this church here. We shouldn't be leaving a Sunday night. If that pastor's prepared his sermon, I wasn't even a pastor then. That pastor's prepared his sermon and worked his heart out, and he's going to preach his heart out to us. And even if he doesn't preach his heart out to us, we're supposed to be in the church where our membership is, not out somewhere else, getting entertained and hearing about somebody else and stuff like that, and then going and having pizza and Coca-Cola after that. And God gave me conviction my second year of college. I'm a local church man. I didn't realize how important that was because I'm still a local church man tonight. And then there's the third one. Would you notice this real quickly tonight? I've got I to finish before I let you go. There's a doctrine of the church. I don't even have time to tell you more on that. There's a doctrine of salvation. Notice the doctrine of godliness. Now, godliness is basically being like God in character, attitude, spirit, and performance. It's just being like God. Now, you're not becoming God. That's new ageism. It's, it's, it's realizing is that God is conforming your character to his. Godliness is mentioned nine times in this passage. Now, I want you to notice something here. I'm going, to call, I'm going to call out and mark some sins that are contrary to godliness, and then we're done. I've got more to say, but I've got to, I've got to finish. Maybe I'll preach again Sunday night. I'll just tell Brother Rossi, listen to me. I don't know, whatever there, okay? Then you can give me his offering that night, amen? You know, okay? Why don't you go with me, 1 Timothy 6. Please turn there. If you've got to go, go home. That's fine. I understand. If you've got children, you, you go home. That's fine. You won't, you won't insult me or anything like that. 1 Timothy 6, notice what it said. Brother, Brother Irwin, can you read that again? 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 6, please, Brother Irwin. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 6. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but dotting about questions and strifes of words, whereof come, uh, cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmi uh, surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing the gain is godliness from such, withdraw thyself. There's a lot, a lot of stuff there. I want you to catch some things. God himself called godliness a doctrine. Alan Fong did not make that up. The doctrine according to godliness. Did you see that? Okay. Then what you notice is, if you, don't, if you don't believe in being godly, if you don't believe in a godly lifestyle, you don't believe in that, notice what he says about you're proud knowing nothing. That's what he says in verse 4. He says you're proud knowing because you're elevating yourself above God. You think you're better than everybody else. And you've got that kind of attitude. You need to make, your, you need to make a beeline, get your face down here on the aisle and ask God to forgive you for having that kind of attitude there because pride has no place in the work of God. As we go into revival, it means we can't have that kind of spirit and attitude there. So notice what he says here. What's this, what's, this, what's this trend or this drift? The trend and drift is the same one Paul had to deal with when he talked to Timothy and it's found in verse 6. The trend that was being taught and advocated, godliness, no, it's verse 5 he said, he said, um, he said where it says, supposing, verse 5, the gain is godliness. That's the trend. It's a trend in every church as it matures. As it be educated, more people get educated. People get good jobs. People are successful in their careers. All those are good things. But I'm going to tell you, as I understand the scriptures tonight, that's why my heart's so burdened. He says, listen, there's a drift going on. There's a trend going on. And that trend is that we're living and exemplifying and we're teaching by our lives that gain is godliness. And I'm going to tell you tonight, brother and sister in Christ, gain is not godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain, the Bible says. So notice this tonight. It's propagated by other names. Education and professionalism. It's also called the Laodicean mindset. We're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And that's our problem. We barely make our way to church, but we don't need God. Your desire when you come to church is I'm getting to church because I need God. I need God's holiness. I need God's power. I need God's enablement. I need God to help me be more humble. I need God to help me in my prayer time. I need God to realize, uh, God to help me because I haven't arrived and I'm far from arriving. We need to get to the place to come to church. We need God. And if you don't realize that tonight, you're in serious trouble and so am I. We need God. Then notice 1 Timothy 4, 7, another attack on godliness. Almost done. He says, but refuse profane and old wise fables. And exercise thyself around their godliness. Let me tell you what he's talking about there. Profane and old wise fables. This is boiled down to listening to podcasts, internet sermons, the books of the latest author. Here you go again, Pastor. Yeah, I know. You don't have a clue what these men believe. You have no idea. Did you know most writers, they have an agenda when they're writing? They're trying to ingrain you with their preferences and twist your ideas about what, what's biblical and make it unbiblical because they want you to believe what they have to say. I mean, I've known preachers who got all messed up and concerning the second coming of Christ because they read somebody's book. Get out of those people's books and get in this book. And so Paul said they're profane and old wise fables. 
He says, exercise yourself unto, unto godliness. You know, these social media wolves, that's the new term we're going to give you that you're going to hear a lot of. Social media wolves. They want your tithe. By the way, the local church is where your tithe belongs. The local church is where you tithe. And these social media wolves, they want your money, they want your affection, they want your time. And listen, more people are following all these podcasts and things like that. They're just spending time. Why don't you sit down and read through the book of Isaiah for the same time you listen to, the, to some stupid podcast out there? You'll get more out of Isaiah than you would from the podcast, I promise you that. And then here's another one. We're done. Another attack on God is found in chapter 4, verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is coming. Let me tell you what the, what the trend is now, okay? This is all over every church. The trend is now that, that uh, the attack on godliness is there's such an emphasis on physical health. Gym memberships, excessive workouts, all these health food fads, all this stuff. And I'm for, and by the way, I, I'm for being healthy. You get around me, I'm for being healthy, okay? I'm for, I'm for having good cholesterol, all that kind of stuff there. I have, I'm for all those things, and I, and I try to do that. I'm trying to work hard, get my, my bad cholesterol down right now. You, 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 I'm for all those things, okay? Here's what I'm saying. The problem is there's such an emphasis on that stuff, you're not, working on, you're not working on your heart, you're working on your health. You need to work on your heart, not your health. So you get cancer in the body. That's bad. And you need to deal with it. But a lot of us who are healthy, we've got cancer of the soul. We don't even know it. And that cancer soul is sin. I'm done. Let me tell you tonight, I'm not mad at you or anything like that. But God put in my heart. He says, you need to charge them to teach no other doctrine. Number one, teachers, you need to get right with God. Number two, you're using your influence the wrong way. You need to get right with God. I'm going to be very direct with you. Paul was very direct. Number three, number three, your pursuit should be godliness and nothing else. Amen. Number four, okay, number four, and number four, watch this here. The local church, you need to be loyal to your local church. You need to be loyal to your local church. I'm going to tell you tonight, there's something wrong. Our attendance is going backwards. It's not going forwards. There's something wrong. I'm doing my part. How about you? Now, I'm going to be here whether you are not, and I don't care if you get mad at me. That's your business before God, because that means you're proud knowing nothing. That's what Paul said. But I'm going to tell you tonight, I'm not even giving an invitation tonight, because you know what? I think most invitations, I think most people come down, it's all contrived. I don't think you're really serious about God. So I'll tell you tonight, I'm, I love you, Lord, but if you, the Holy Spirit spoke to you, you know what you need to do. I'm not going to give an invitation. We're going we're to have a prayer, and if you need to do something, you do what you have to do here, but I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to I'm not gonna even ask anybody to play the piano tonight, because you know what? The, whole, the Holy Spirit doesn't need a piano. The Holy Spirit needs your heart. So we're gone. Thank, sorry for taking a little bit longer, but I couldn't wait to after Brother Rossi's done. God put this on my heart Monday. I'm still burdened about it right now. I've got a, I've got a second part of this I'm going to preach, but I, you better listen, take heed to what he said. He said, charge some, they teach no other doctrine.